Hello again, I am Marcus Brigstock and welcome to Breaking Good, the podcast rethinking separation and divorce brought to you by Forsters. Now, in this episode, we're going to have a look at prenups. What better time of year when people are out shopping for lovely Christmas <laughs> gifts to have a think about prenups? Many people might think they're just for the wealthy, but there are lots of situations where having an agreement in place actually might come in useful. Alain de Botton has written a lot about love and marriage, and he said, you are ready to get married when you're ready for administration. Oh, so romantic. He says it's less about romance and, in fact, has much more in common with the workings of a small business. Swoon. <laughs> Alain. <laughs> uh, getting us very excited. Now, joining me to talk about the business of marriage is, as always, Joe Edwards. Hello, Joe. Hi there, Marcus. We're nearly there. Christmas is in sight. Christmas is in sight. Um, I've admitted to you today that actually the needles are already falling on my Christmas tree, well, given I quite did. how early I put it up, but I don't want you to say I told you so. OK, well, that's... It, it's quite good practice for what's going to happen in January, having to not say I told you so to people <laughs> who have made a terrible mistake. By then the tree will be very old, so yeah, I suspect yeah, that's yeah. right. But it's still looking beautiful, very festive at home. And you'll be able to sell what's left of the tree tariff-free to Europe. Absolutely. <laughs> Good. Can I say, everyone's looking very festive. And by everyone, I, I mean Joe and I, of course, and we're joined again by Rosie Shum. Hello, Rosie. Welcome back. Hello, Marcus. Good to see you again. How have you been? I've been really well. I've been doing some ridiculous Christmas shopping. Good. Because I like ridiculous Christmas shopping. Excellent. So, what are prenuptial agreements and why are they used? So putting it at its really most basic level, a prenuptial agreement, and as we hopefully will also discuss today, can also be a, a postnuptial agreement, is just a document which sets out where a divorce may take place, if there is going to be one in the future, um, and what broadly the financial outcome may be if there were a divorce. So it's a document which can be prescriptive, or it can be fairly broad brush. It can flex over time to reflect possible changes such as children being born to the relationship. Um, it can deal with how the finances will operate during the marriage, although the primary focus will be um, on divorce. One thing it typically doesn't deal with, though, and we commonly ask this question, is can it deal with child arrangements? And the short answer to that is no, that would be dealt with at the point of any divorce. But in a nutshell, that's what a, a prenup or a postnup would be intended to cover. OK, so it is... It is what I thought. I'm pleased to say. I mean, because I've been I've been surprised as we've done the series by some of what we've discussed, some detail that I hadn't really understood, and a lot of the preconceptions. But a prenup so far is roughly what I thought. And also, they're not necessarily a new idea. They've been around for millennia. Um, there's an ancient Hebrew marriage contract that goes back 2,000 years. And also the French first recorded um, prenups in the 9th century. So originally the prenup was really set up to protect wives, assuring them of some form of property in the event of divorce or the husband's death. So we do think of them as a very kind of new thing, an American import like Miley Cyrus or hamburgers. But in actual fact, they're, they're, they're quite an old concept. Mm. If you'd been Henry VIII's third wife and not got yourself a prenup I'm afraid that's on you then at that point <laughs> on your head be it literally on your head <laughs> if I've remembered the order correctly divorce so, the head yeah so I mean the obvious answer I, I assume to why would a person get a prenup you've answered in a, in a sense to provide some certainty in the event of things going wrong but I mean why do people 
get them now because we think of we think of very wealthy people going well look you're wealthy and successful and and or so am i let's just do this just in case and some important lawyers will do it and keep it at a distance but why does sort of why does joe blogs get a prenup now I think one of the biggest misconceptions, in my view, is that people have a prenup because one of them wants to fiercely protect their wealth and that it's all about them protecting their wealth and the other person getting nothing. Mm. Um, but there are many reasons, actually, why people might have a prenup. So, yes, there are scenarios, and we see quite a few of them, where there is an actual existing disparity in the financial positions of the couple at the point that they are getting married. Sometimes there's an anticipated disparity, so one of them may know they're going to come into money in the future, a gift, an inheritance, something of that ilk. I think increasingly commonly, Rosa, we also see, you know, proper dual income couples yeah. who it's more about, you know, they, they want to have a discussion about how they're going to pool their resources, what they are going to pool and what they're going to decide from the outset is going to be theirs individually. I think also increasingly commonly we see quite a few that are driven by the wider family. So um, if there is an anticipation of an inheritance in the future mm. or maybe parents of one of the spouses-to-be are doing a bit of um, inheritance tax planning and thinking they will gift some money to, to their son or daughter, um, they may wish to protect that against divorce. Mm -hmm. So th there can be all sorts of reasons and all sorts of influences, I think, Rosie, in the, in the conversations we have with people. Yeah, I mean, I've seen so many different reasons for clients coming in to see me about prenups. Um, I think the most unusual one was like Joe said where there was wealth on both sides but in this particular case it was a postnup actually uh, and the couple were about to sell their very very trendy business for I think it was 37 million if I remember rightly and they, which seems a lot which but these seems, days is it <laughs> it is a lot of money and what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that when they divorced that it was a very fair outcome because lots of the assets were moving offshore and so they wanted to give the wife reassurance that she was going to get half of the matrimonial assets. So in a really, really weird way, it was underpinning the approach of the English courts on divorce. So it was oh, quite see. an unusual way in, but it was a very, all the same. It was a very, um, a very substantial prenup in the end, but a very good one. It was a postnup. They'd already yes. had a little baby, and it was very amicable. And they, you know, they came in with their child, and it was, it was a really good negotiation. We had very constructive lawyers on both sides, um, and I think. The distinction, obviously, between between uh, negotiating a prenup and negotiating a divorce is that couple are very amicable and they're getting on very, very well. Yeah, it may be off the point, but I mean, is, isn't a solution to something like that to, uh, if if it's going offshore or whatever, to just put both names on the business? Does that not solve that? Problem? Well, they were selling the business. The point was the money was going offshore, oh, and so it was for tax. It was they were just reassure, reiterating yeah. that they wanted it to be a fair division. Uh, of course, another way people can avoid that is by not sending their money offshore, but just paying some tax yeah. <laughs> you know yes. just if there are people listening who, who wonder sort of what's the right way through this as we deal with the fallout of the pandemic and brexit one of the ways anyway i shan't go on it's not for me to judge as someone who lives here uh, so so that's an example of a of a post-nup you're already married circumstances mm -hmm. change and all the rest of it i mean uh, the idea of sitting down engaged or in a relationship thinking about marriage and asking for a prenup i think scare it scares me right mm. the idea of it scares me the idea of already being married and then <laughs> saying 
Um, by the way. Now, listen, I <laughs> thought we might just make a plan in case we get well, a divorce. Isn't that funny? Because the notion of kind of romantic lo- love is quite a new concept. Alain de Baton, who you quoted yeah. at the start, it's all about romantic love versus sort of practical love. Now, I was helping my son with his GCSE English yesterday, and it was all about the Merchant of Venice, and it reminded me of the kind of the the old-fashioned example of a marriage contract. Yes. And then I was thinking, actually, you know, Pride and Prejudice, you know, societal aspiration through, you know, rising in your position through society, through who you marry. Now, the idea of romantic love is very much a kind of 19th century concept, isn't it? Something that's come quite late. It's, uh, a, it's on. a fad, right? So I, I think, think <laughs> so I think I think that sort of socio um, kind of look at prenups is a really interesting one that we're sort of looking at them through the ages and as I said at the outset they're a very old concept so I think this idea that we're sort of imprinting them with our kind of modern ideals of love and saying well they're terribly terribly depressing things to do I think they're actually really really important because what they do don't they Joe is they actually they can actually reaffirm a couple's the strength of a couple's relationship because isn't it great to be transparent about your financial position from the outset? Um, I think that's one of the huge advantages of prenups, actually, don't you think, Joe? No, I think that's that's right. It's in one of the earlier episodes we talked about the importance of people really thinking about marriage long and hard as a commitment before yeah. they enter into it, and. That, for me, is one of the major benefits of having a prenup, that you're engaging in this conversation before you are getting wed. You're doing it in the months leading up to the wedding, appreciating there's lots else going on around that time as well. Um, And sometimes we find that people actually don't really know each other's finances um, at all or not in any detail until we sit down to talk about it. Mm. It's also an opportunity to talk about the life decisions they might make, such as are they likely to have children? Um, if they are going to have children, will they both carry on working? Will one of them give up work? Where might they live? Um, how might the child be educated? Because all of this feeds into the sort of outcomes that, that one might have in a divorce. Mm. And so, although I totally appreciate it sounds horribly unromantic to be broaching a prenup yeah. or a postnup, actually, for us, I mean, we always say to, to people, sensible to be as dispassionate as possible about them. Um, It's an insurance policy. It's something that we hope, frankly, couples will put away in the drawer once it's signed. They certainly won't live their married lives by the prenup. But if, heaven forbid, they ever do face divorce and around 42% of marriages do unfortunately end up in divorce, it saves um, cost, both financial mm. and emotional, of you know months, even years of litigation. So I think looking at it from that perspective, I, it just makes good common sense yeah. for people to have those discussions. I think the best example of extreme exposure on divorce is Jeff Bezos's divorce, where his where there's a 38 billion payout to his ex-wife. Which again, it seems a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> but is it these days enormous match she became the fourth richest lady in the world overnight and she essentially is giving half of her of her wealth away to charity which yeah. is incredible really if you think about and, it and just just well is jeff is he going to be all right because that does seem like a lot of money <laughs> well of course he got the other half of it so he's all so he's, he's okay. probably okay yeah. he'll probably be all right again <laughs> 
pay your taxes. But could so, we, I mean, can <laughs> I just, I, I wonder whether we might briefly debunk a myth, which I'm sure does exist. Oh, yes, though, about, what this about, podcast is for. <laughs> because, of course, we're talking here about multi, multi millions or billions in yes. that case. But to be absolutely clear, this isn't about or just about the multi, multi millionaires or billionaires. And mm. we've talked about some of the scenarios we see where it might be a really successful dual income young couple um, who just decide they want to manage their resources in a particular way. So it really is all diff- different types, all walks of life. Mm. Um, of course, there's not going to be much point having a prenup. Um, if, like a lot of couples, it's just a family home with a mortgage on it um, and an income. Um, but in any case where, where there's more than that, I think it's always worth looking at and having this insurance policy, mm. um, as I describe it. So it really can cover all sorts yeah. of different types of situation. We're sort of t- we're touching on uh, massive themes that go beyond uh, just the prenup. As you, you mentioned, it, it came up before about communicating better as you go into a marriage. Yes. It was in the episode we did about no-fault divorce, and I said, rather, do listen to the previous episodes, please, people, come on. <laughs> please do. If you haven't done the homework, what are you doing skipping to this one? <laughs> uh, but I said rather flippantly, oh, you know, perhaps people should give a reason to get married. And, it, of course, it was then discussed, quite mm. rightly, that that's what used to happen. Yes. You'd sit, you know, with your priest or your whatever it may be, mm. and you'd discuss it. Mm. Now I don't think so. And one of the things you mentioned just there is sort of, will you, won't you have children? I know people mm. in my own life, and I'm sure you do too, who've gone into a marriage where one of them definitely wants kids mm. and the other one, or the bloke, uh, <laughs> is is not against it, but very unclear on on yeah. what is actually a huge fundamental for some people. Mm. You know, yeah, absolutely. We see lots of those situations, mm. and sometimes we see them in the prenup discussion. Sometimes, yeah. unfortunately, we see them at the point of the divorce, um, yes. and that's been the reason. But. Absolutely. As we said during episode two, please do listen. Uh, no fault yes. divorce. Um, it, it shouldn't be a system which tries to make divorce more difficult, in my view, but it, it should certainly be a system which, in which couples are encouraged to think very carefully before they get married about yeah. whether that is the right decision for them. Absolutely. Have you created any prenuptial agreements that contain a condition about why the marriage is ending? In other words... Are there any prenuptial agreements that say this is what we'll do unless you have an affair, in which case all bets are off and I will rinse you? So I haven't written any agreements like that because um, they wouldn't hold water here, quite frankly. But I've had two or three cases where I've acted for an individual who I think in all instances, actually, it was an American prenup, different Mm. um, states within the US, where they've had these infidelity clauses. Mm. Um, And I was reminded, I was looking this morning at some celebrity prenups. I do love a bit of celebrity to to bring this into these podcasts, obviously. (laughs) Bring a bit of glamour to it. Um, And allegedly, and I I think this is true, um, obviously, um, Jessica B and Justin Timberlake, for example, it said that they have a stipulation in their prenup about cheating. And if Justin cheats on Jessica, she receives $500,000. It doesn't specify whether that's as a one-off or for each, for <laughs> each affair, but, but there we go. <laughs> um, and a very strange one, I thought, um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, um, their prenup apparently said that if 
dad cheated on Angelina, she'd receive sole custody of all of their children. Now, again, that's not something, as I've said already, that a yeah. prenup here would ever specify what would happen in the event of divorce to the children. Um, but, but might what, that exist in, uh, in American law? Apparently so. Yeah, I mean, that, that okay. particular clause, I have to say, with the children isn't something I've seen in my practice. But the infidelity clause and that leading to, to more money or a, a one-off payment, mm. I have seen. But I've always advised the client, and certainly my most recent one, it was him who was the person who had been unfaithful, so it didn't work in his favour. Mm. And I was able to say to him, well, don't worry, because the English family court isn't going to give any weight to that. But right. it's one of the interesting um, points that we have in our practice, working with lawyers around the world on these documents, if we have couples with international connections, yeah. um, we do see some quite unusual clauses and sometimes mm. trying to translate things from one country to another and our legal system can be quite challenging. Breaking good. Rethinking separation and divorce. Brought to you by Forsters. Are there any other benefits to thinking about a prenuptial agreement that we haven't discussed? I think they promote autonomy, they promote individualism and they promote certainty. So for me, it's about um, when a couple come to me and when, I, when an individual comes to me of a couple mm. and they say to me, actually, I, I think I'm I think I really want this prenup, but I'm not sure how to articulate that to my other side. I always say to them, actually, keep it, you know, keep it simple, keep it, keep it um Let's 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 kind of distill the essential elements of this document and try and agree heads of terms. And then they, they sort of feel empowered in the process. There's a sort of sense of autonomy that comes from drafting a document which you own, which is essentially tailor made to your specific circumstances. So it's not a sort of, you know, one size fits all. Mm. Joe and I really are skilled at making sure that these agreements are well crafted, well drafted. Um, that they really cater to the needs of the particular family. And that it is about the family, that's a really key point because as I've said already, too many people think that this is all about one person trying to put a big wrapper around their wealth and not share it. Well frankly yeah. if they try to do that, that won't be upheld here. So even if you have a nuptial agreement in England and Wales, the court can still look at things on divorce. And if it deems that your agreement is unfair, it can substitute its own view of fairness. Um, and so this is all about trying to work out fairness for the individual family, work out how fairness might flex over time, mm. how the needs might change um, over time. So I think that's really important that, that that's understood. I think the, the, the preconception, fairly or unfairly, is that the person going into the marriage with a larger pot of wealth is generally the one who suggests a prenuptial agreement or perhaps their family do or whatever. Is that is that roughly correct or is it as often as not someone coming into a marriage thinking, I'm sort of at least financially a bit outgunned here and I want to make sure that I'm not done over? I think you're right. It is generally the richer party who will suggest it. But mm. I've had some very egalitarian approaches by clients with wealth on both sides um, where there's complex issues because there's multiple jurisdictions involved or they're um, or they're in a different stage of their relationship they're about to have a child perhaps it's a post-nup mm. and so I think Joe and I we've seen all sorts of different situations and I think you have to be as a family lawyer very open-minded to that the hardest prenups that I have to and post-nups that I have to negotiate are the ones where there's quite a kind of antic antiquated approach from the other side so you have a lawyer on the other side that's quite intransigent that they haven't thought about negotiating it's yes. a fait accompli essentially you have to sign what I'm sending to you and I find those are the most difficult I mean they're not impossible 
But if they come a month before the wedding, and really the recommendation is that you sign them 28 days before the wedding, yeah. it can be really, really difficult from a psychological perspective for the weaker spouse financially, not the weak, not necessarily no, personality-wise, because sure. yeah. they can sometimes be the strongest spouse. Um, but the weaker spouse financially, it's hard for them to sort of deal with that situation. And the well. clock's ticking towards what should be a happy day, and, and one lawyer has said, look, it's this, or nothing well yes and i think yeah. joe i know joe would probably um want me to touch upon this as well but really it's about undue influence that if you have duress or undue influence in the process it can undermine the agreement itself so if you feel there's a lot of arm twisting more than that undue pressure mm. on on the other party uh, or on your client to sign this document then you have to be very very sensitive to that and yeah. it's quite important for us as lawyers to make sure we've documented that as well mm. Now, speaking of sensitive, how on earth do you sit your beloved down and say, listen, I've been having a bit of a chat with a solicitor mate of mine, and I just sort of thought maybe sign here. <laughs> how do you bring it up? What, what happens? Uh, I, one of the biggest aspects of this for me is, is the T word timing. And timing is key. So I mean, I've got a case at the moment where it, it's a potential post-nuptial agreement for various reasons. And this couple had a prenup a number of years ago now. And one of them was in touch with me over the last few weeks to say, for various reasons, I think we might need to give this a bit of an MOT, which mm -hmm. I totally agree with. And he said to me, when should I raise this? And I straight away said, well, when do the kids break up for Christmas? And he said, you know, fairly soon. And I said, now's not the best not time, now. possibly. So I think timing and being really sensitive about timing is is desperately important. Likewise, if thinking about a prenup, not in the first flushes of an engagement and the really happy times, equally not two weeks before the wedding, you know, not, mm. not least because it wouldn't be upheld here if you were signing it, as Rosie says, under duress up against a wedding. So timing is key. I think honesty is key, being open and honest about what is the driver behind this. Now, it's an easier conversation, in my experience, if it's being driven by a wider family member, which mm -hmm. it has, I say quite often is. But just be open about that and discuss that with your spouse. Um, try to outline the positives and we've tried to describe some of the positives today so particularly the freedom to agree on financial outcomes having that certainty mm. of course constantly peppered with we never anticipate getting divorced darling don't worry but this is that insurance policy mm. type point bringing that back in again um i've said already do try to agree as much between you as you possibly can in terms of big picture principles if not the actual figures um and i think providing lots of reassurance not being um closed-minded about what you're wanting to achieve listening to any concerns that your spouse to be is expressing any anxieties about their financial future under what's been being discussed and being prepared to move your position mm. um, and possibly as I've said being prepared to move the position under the prenup as the years um, evolve and as circumstances mm. change so I think if people bring all of those ingredients into the kitchen into the discussions um, in our experience we can handle things fairly sensitively Rosie is right to say that a big element of that is 
actually the, the solicitors who are involved and yeah. not having somebody who is super aggressive, um, who is trying to conduct this like a commercial negotiation. Sometimes, dare I say, who perhaps isn't a specialist in this area, is mm -hmm. a generalist. Those are, I've only had a handful of those, but those are my my most difficult That's an interesting up negotiations. point, yes. Yeah, so maybe sort of the family solicitor, yeah. whilst you might know them, it, it actually, unless they've got experience with this, they're not the person to go to. They're definitely not. Um, I think partly because they feel very wedded to the family course, um, yeah. and very loyal to them, understandably. So we'll feel as though they are serving them a purpose, doing them a favour mm. by sticking to their guns about the points that are being raised. And partly because they're not steeped in this work. And these are mm. bespoke documents. It's a specialist area of work. Um, ultimately, the court will not uphold this if one person has just stuck to their guns and said, this is the offer, take it or leave it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's duress there, there's potential lack of fairness there. Um, so that's not the way in which to approach mm. these at all in our yeah. experience, I think. I think I'd just add on to, to Joe's list that my biggest advice is to be patient and kind because this process can sometimes take a while. I've had a few post-nups that have taken slightly longer than has been expected because perhaps there's a baby on the way. We need to, you know, if there's a baby on the way, you need to be careful. You need to make sure that you're giving your, your spouse enough time to really think about this in, an, mm. in enough detail and there's not mm. pressure at the wrong time and stage in their lives. And so I would sort of stand back from it a little bit. Trust your lawyer. Trust your lawyer knows what they're doing to negotiate this in the right way. Mm. Uh, do you sometimes or often find that one person going into a marriage uh, doesn't know what their partner has got? Yeah, that's not I mean, there must be uncommon. surprises I mean, come up. Certainly we see it a lot on divorce, let alone on going into the marriage. So it, it's not uncommon yeah. um, when we start these discussions for one person. Obviously, they both have to do financial disclosure and set out what they each have at the outset. Um, and if it's a case where one of them is worth considerably more than the other, then yes, it can come as a surprise. One of the difficult questions we get asked, particularly by wider family members, quite often is well how honest should we be and should we be overestimating underestimating what an inheritance may be and quite often the people that we act for genuinely don't know what their inheritance prospects are and we always say to them well it, it's best if we overestimate so that there are no surprises at the other end if there is a divorce mm. and suddenly you said you inherited X but actually we'd only thought it was going to be Y mm. that could invalidate the whole prenup but yeah it, it, it can be quite eye-opening for people which again I think feeds into why it's so important yeah. to have that open and honest discussion So in the event of a divorce you do need to, to make a full financial disclosure yes. right in order to negotiate a prenup do you also need to do that yes you yes. do you do okay. it needs to be material disclosure so what's material to you making the decision to sign it you're giving yeah. up you're giving up essentially um your rights on divorce so you have to be quite careful mm. um so it's essentially knowing what you're signing up to you can't do that if you don't know what the other the mm. other party's finances are we're quite unique in that, in the level of disclosure that's expected. Um, I've been doing a prenup recently with Switzerland, and it was a bit of a, a mishmash between English law and Swiss law. Um, and the Swiss were quite surprised at the level of detail that the English lawyers were saying they wanted in the disclosure, because in Switzerland, you just would sign up to the document that's it. But as Rosie says, it's about being able to prove um, that somebody knew what they were giving up 
as a result of signing this yes, document and you don't know that unless you know the full financial mm. picture I mean, and it's it's always the elephant in the room if you if your parents know what you're going to inherit and you don't. So you have to have some quite difficult discussions with your client to, as Joe said, overestimate what, what you have or what your parents are saying you're going to inherit in this document. Yeah. I'm sure there isn't a you know, one size fits all thing with this, but just just stage by stage, what are the processes of arranging a, a prenup and a and a postnup? So, I mean, I've said timing, 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 timing is key, and it, it's slightly different between a prenup and a postnup. So, with a prenup, and most of the agreements we do will be prenups, um, we advise people to start the negotiations pretty early. When I say pretty early, they're typically signed no more than twelve months before people get married and should be signed at least four weeks, 28 days before they get married. So it's that sort of 11th month window. You should that, be engaged first. I think well, that's important. Well, I think ideally you need yeah. to know who you're contracting with. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, ideally engaged. Very good point, Marcus. Don't yeah, so go engaged. on to Bumble or Match.com <laughs> with your prenup already in hand no, as to what you expect. No, no. Yeah. And I if think, you, you know, want it, then you should have put a ring on it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Those are the rules. So bespoke document for the actual couple hopefully yeah. engaged in the so first place. So expect it to take a bit of time. Give yeah. yourself some time. Yeah, I mean, okay. we say try to allow three to four months for negotiations. I'm not saying that we'd be negotiating you know, yeah, full yeah. on every day for three to, four, three to four months, but there needs to be time for each of them to take advice, for financial disclosure to be produced, um, for questions to be raised on the mm-hmm. disclosure if there is any, and then for the substantive terms to be negotiated. And of course, it's that last bit which tends to take the time. So yeah. allow plenty of time for that. The best processes are not where there are lots of letters flying back and forth, but where there might be a roundtable meeting. So in normal times, um, hopefully we'd all come together, we'd sit together in a room, try and sit the couple next to each other so it doesn't feel like we're pitting them against each other on opposite sides of the Mm -hmm. table. Um, And that way they get to hear each other's point of view, where the anxieties are. And that's a really good way in our experience, I think, of of cracking any final points. Um, And then the couple sign up to it. It's a private document, so it doesn't get registered anywhere. We don't have a bank of them anywhere. It's a contract between two people. So it's a contract between two people. As I've said, hopefully then it just gets put away in a drawer. So we will typically keep the originals once everybody has signed up to them, but let the, let the couple have copies. Um, it may need to be looked at. We, we've talked about post-ups, so we've referred to them a few times today. So there may be reasons and good reasons to have an MOT of the prenup along yeah. the way, particularly if that, they... That seems to me obvious that you know circumstances for everybody shift over time and that you 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 are going to want to tinker they with these. do i mean it used to be that quite often prenups will be entered into then they would say effectively after 10 years let's just review it we mm. tend not to do that we do try to make them documents which can flex over time um, but if there has been unexpected wealth acquired on one side um, somewhere along the way or particularly in international cases where we might have um, couples moving from overseas to England England, um, who have a prenup which the English family court just wouldn't necessarily understand or follow the terms yeah. of, that can also be a good opportunity to, to look at things again. Now, as Rosie has said, post-nup negotiations, and we've both done quite a few post-nups, are really challenging. They can be very time-consuming because there isn't the same impetus. There isn't a wedding on the horizon. There isn't the hook. Yeah. And depending on the circumstances, I mean, Rosie talked about one case where I think you said your client was having a baby. I had one where the negotiations went on so 
so long, unbeknownst to me, my client had a baby during the oh, process. Right. Wow, okay. Um, didn't tell me she'd didn't had a baby. It. You know, just went quiet for a few months and I yeah. didn't really think mm-hmm. about it. And then everybody regrouped. And I said, oh, you've had a baby. We probably ought to factor that into this document <laughs> in some Do way. Yeah. Uh, so they, the, the post-nup negotiations can take a little longer. And sometimes, obviously, people just will refuse to sign a post-nup. They don't have to sign a post-nup. Yeah. Yeah. I had one, I had a, a post-nup where it was a hedge fund manager, actually, and he and all of his investors in his fund would not invest until he got a, a post-nup in, pre- in place. So that was the impetus that we eventually got to sign it. Had we not oh, had that impetus, yeah. had we not had that sort of that sort of background story, then it would have been very difficult to get it signed. Yes, yeah, so you, I, I imagine a sort of, you know, a wealthy family gathering round someone and saying, now, listen, make sure you get a prenuptial agreement. I hadn't thought for a second about a gang of hedge funders. <laughs> well, yeah. Going, and actually- now, listen, Charlie, those are really smart red trousers. They're really smart, but you've got to get this this filly you're marrying <laughs> keep a bloody eye on her <laughs> yeah. I've only met a few of them I don't know if that's how they speak yeah they I think do. I think that's probably the case Breaking Good Rethinking Separation and Divorce brought to you by Forsters Families and marriages come in all different shapes and sizes and some older people getting married uh, how does it vary how does a prenuptial or a postnuptial uh, agreement vary in those situations that's a really good question and i think joe and i as i said before are really used to dealing with all sorts of different situations i think they have a really big role to play in second marriages where one party comes in with perhaps financial baggage commitments be them financial or otherwise and complex wealth situations whether it's the family business or perhaps trust structures etc and i think um we're very used to drafting postnups, prenups for second marriage situations, um, you have to be quite careful to balance the commitments to the new family against the obligations to the old family. I say old; they may no, not be I, old yeah, necessarily, yeah. but you know, there's a sort of there's a sort of balancing exercise. And again, you have to be quite cognizant of just making sure that you're acting in your client's best interest, whilst also making sure that the agreement would eventually be enforceable. Hopefully, the court mm. were to look at it. And I think it has been an interesting development in recent years that I'm not sure I like the term grey divorce, but we have seen an increase in grey divorce. And as a result of that increase, we've seen uh, more and more people getting married a second, third, fourth time later in life. And then we face requests for, for prenups or it can be a postnup, as Rosie had said at that stage. I'm bound to say sometimes the result of those conversations, and I can think of one case in particular, was an older couple who decided not to get married. So they they stayed together, they were living together very happily. But when I chatted through with my client, and she was the one with the greater wealth, he wasn't without wealth, um, she had children from the first marriage who she wanted to ensure would be provided for on her death. And the negotiations, the the initial discussions just got very tricky when we talked about what fairness might look like for him, depending on whether they were married for two years or five Mm. years or ten years. And he was approaching retirement at the the time. I think she quickly realised that actually she did want to prioritise her children financially. Mm. And so that didn't mean that she didn't love him a lot. And as I say, they very much are still together. But they decided that marriage was just too risky from that perspective. And I can think of another case, again, a very lovely client who's husband had sadly died and had left her quite considerable sums. There'd been a bit of an age difference between them and again she had children and 
she'd wanted to use a lot of that inheritance for charitable purposes and she'd met a lovely, again, a lovely new partner. And when we were having those prenup negotiations, I had to say to her, well, again, it might be better for you actually not not to get married and just mm. to, to keep the status quo. So sometimes that that's where people end up. They just decide they are going to live together um, and not get married. But clearly, if they do get married, we have to think very carefully about what the provision might might look like. So they're really interesting cases and interesting issues that yeah. they throw up. Can a couple who don't get married? still come up with some sort of agreement mm. between them Absolutely, that would be yeah. applicable so, in the event of them splitting up. Yeah. Uh, we've dealt, Joe and I have both probably prepared um, pre-civil partnership agreements as mm. well, I should add to that, and same-sex couple agreements. But yeah, I had a really interesting case a few years ago where a client came to me and asked, um, look, I'm going, to, I'm going to eventually have children with my Brazilian other half, and they were a same-sex couple, and we're going to go for a surrogacy agreement. I'd like a preconception agreement before we decide to make that jump to reassure my Brazilian other half that um, he is looked after in the event that we that we separate, um, and the event, okay. and 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 he essentially wanted that sort of agreement before we went ahead, and I prepared that agreement for him. Mm. And what we also have are cohabitation agreements. So yeah. we've, we've talked again previously in this series. Do listen mm-hmm. um, about the difficult situation that unmarried couples find themselves in in England and Wales, specifically the fact they don't have any legal rights. Um, but sometimes a couple living together decide that they want to regulate their finances in some way by having a cohabitation agreement, which just mm says, well, we're living together, this is how we're going to pool our resources, this is who's going to be responsible for what in terms of outgoings, blah, 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 and this will be the intention if ever we did separate. So one can have that sort of agreement um, as well. Mm. A slightly bleak thought has just occurred to me, so I'll share it with the group and see what you make of it. Have you found, uh, all all legal discretion um, uh, applied, have you found scenarios in which somebody comes to you seeking a post-nuptial agreement uh, when in fact what they want is a divorce. Yes, I've had that a few times. Oh, really? What a surprise. Mm. Yes, and it's a ve- it's always ended up in divorce. Of and course. So I have to be really careful that I'm not preparing a sham a sham agreement. Um, yes. And I have to, I always go with the cooking metaphor, is someone fully cooked? Are they ready for divorce? That sounds awful, doesn't mm. it? Being at what stage are, in that process are they at? But I think sometimes post-nups can be a good idea because perhaps the reason why they're thinking about divorces because they're feeling like their husband is perhaps financially controlling them or their wife is financially controlling them and so they want some financial security so often joe and i are sort of in that sort of cusp scenario Mm. where we're working out whether it's a post-nup or whether it's perhaps a separation agreement or negotiations Mm. on divorce but sometimes i'm going to actually bring in a positive here as well sometimes let's keep it light sometimes it's not about that i mean i i can think of a couple of recent situations one where the couple had with a lot of sadness after a long marriage they decided they were going to separate but for various reasons they didn't want to get divorced and so we had a post up again I did it in mediation with them actually then sent them off for legal advice it's all very amicable and so a lot of it was about how they were going to carry on co-owning property who was going to fund what Um, they were very fortunate they had lots of properties around the world Um, what happened if one of them wanted to sell it the other one didn't so Mm. we actually positively worked through a lot of that and then I've got they didn't divorce, yeah. but a post-nuptial a agreement po- between them made facilitated how they wanted to it live apart. Facilitated how yeah. they wanted to live apart, how they were going to co-own things, and then 
as and if and when they did decide to divorce in the future for whatever reason, what would then happen, how everything would be divvied up. Mm. And I have another case at the moment, actually, where I'm really crossing everything. We've got a certain distance with financial negotiations in the context of a divorce. My client really, I think, would like to reconcile. Mm. Um, and we're going to try and push that because, frankly, having taken the financial negotiations as far as we have, if they can now reconcile, rightly or wrongly, it's my view, why not have that imprint in a post-nup so if, heaven forbid, the reconciliation isn't successful long-term, they don't need to do all of this again. We've sort of we've captured it now. Yeah. But the hope will be that the reconciliation will hold. Again, it's a long marriage, children. So that, for me, felt like a, mm. a potentially positive way forward. So they're not universally a negative, definitely on the um, crash course to no, divorce thing. No, no, of thing. course, yeah. How do you, as lawyers, how do you psychologically prepare someone for the process that they're going through? How do you sort of get them ready? Because part of this might be a bit a bit bruising. I, I think, again, it goes back to relationships and just always having at the forefront of your mind. We talked last week about children and children being at the forefront. These discussions, it's about holding the relationship and ensuring that they come out of the other side of these discussions as unscathed, as, as happy as possible. So partly it's that prep at home, discussing what they can or a facilitated conversation to agree what mm. they possibly can. Partly that's about the relationship with the other solicitor, as we've also mentioned, and just trying to make it a, a good process, as kind a process um, as possible for the couple. Mm. Yeah, it's not about point scoring. It's not about rehearsing a divorce. It really is about being kind and patient, as I said before. Absolutely. Well, there's a nice positive to end it on. <laughs> uh, as we've said, do go back and listen if you haven't already to uh, previous episodes. We certainly hope there'll be more next year as well. Let's see. Uh, that is all the time we've got for today. I've been Marcus Brigstock and will probably continue to be. Thank you very much to Joe Edwards <laughs> and Rosie Shum and, of course, our producer, Sophie Black. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter, at Forster's Family. And in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and unless you're listening to this next year, Merry Christmas.